Malcolm Turnbull is not in a good place right now. Baby boomers might be running the show now, but that's not going to be the way forever. Is it on? Look, I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Is It On? BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman and I am here in freezing cold Canberra. But joining me further up north, where I'm sure it's sunny, is Mark Stefano from Sydney. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, Alice, and it's sad to say that it's gloomy as hell here in Sydney today. It's very Canberra weather. Well, it can't be as bad as Canberra because we've skipped autumn and it was six degrees this morning. So Mm, democracy is freezing at the moment. Mm. So, Mark, we have a huge holiday episode this week. We chat to the Raven. The the Raven? Nevermore? (laughs) Not Edgar Allan Poe. It's Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young. She'll explain to you a bit later why she's called the Raven. Uh, It's really fascinating. Um, She's also going to talk about... Uh, what's been happening with the Greens lately, how she was kicked out of immigration, which was a bit controversial. She lost her immigration portfolio, which is what most people listening probably know her from, and uh, her new portfolios, which are higher education, universities, childcare and finance. She's got like a lot. It's There's a lot going a on mega, A yeah. mega portfolio. Yeah. But first, before we get to uh, Shy, Sarah Hanson-Young, the Raven, because the Australia Institute did a poll this week where they surveyed 1,400 Aussies about which ministers they'd heard of. So I'm talking the top decision makers, the people on the front bench with Malcolm Turnbull, but this list doesn't include the Prime Minister. And man, the results are troubling, troubling. People- I think eye-opening. I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating to see that so so few Australians actually know uh, who the people in power are in this country. It's a It's a fascinating list. It's a fascinating list. So we've got Julie Bishop at the top, 81%. Interestingly, less people than last year recognised Julie. Her her um her visibility has gone down from 88 to 81%. And then after that, we've got Barnaby Joyce on 69, Christopher Pine nice. on 61, Scott Morrison on 60. That's pretty embarrassing for the Treasurer to be not as well known as Christopher Pine, I think. And so we decided to test this out. I think that, you know, going into the budget in May, it was so surprising to the team here that Scott Morrison was at a 60% recognition rate that we hit the streets, producer Nick and I got our Vox Pop on and we went out to uh, Sydney Circular Quay and we asked people three questions. I took a big photo of Scott Morrison and I said, my first question was, do you know this man? My second question was, can you name five current Australian politicians? And the third question was, name one policy of the current government. Do you know who this man is? Couldn't tell you. No. Um, is it Malcolm Turnbull? Offhand, no. No. <laughs> A politician. Yeah, do you know which politician? No. No. I feel like I should. Yeah, I feel like I probably should. If I said this is the treasurer, do you know who it is? I know what a treasurer is, but I don't, I, I don't know who that it's is. Scott Morrison. Yeah, right. What if I said to you, it's the treasurer? Um, well, I have no idea what his name is. He's the treasurer. Did you know that? No. Do you know who this man is? Yes, Scott Morrison. He is, what, do you know what he, position he has in the country? Yeah, he is the uh, finance 
treasurer. Treasurer, yeah, treasurer. treasurer. Yeah. Can you name five Australian politicians? Probably not. Pauline Hanson. Um, Kevin, no, Kevin Rudd. No longer a politician. Bill Shorten, although he's not really around. Um, Tony Abbott was one. <laughs> That's true. He's still currently a politician, to be fair. Um, Pauline Hanson, Joe Hockey. Joe Hockey is no longer a politician. Oh, f- Clive Palmer. John Howard, he's still one, right? Can you name the Prime Minister? <laughs> Can I name the Prime Minister? Yeah. George Bush? What if I said, do you know one policy of this current government? Just one. Make money. Make money. The lockout laws. That's of the state government. Can I get my phone out? <laughs> no, you can't. This is the thing. It's all I'm on the spot. The policy on uh, immigration, you know, like with the boat people, you know, being all going to detention. Yeah, to destroy pensioners and uh, low-income earners and uh, everybody else that works on weekends while they take their big, fat sausage payments and uh, screw us and call us the welfare recipients. Wow, okay, so um, no one knew who Scott Morrison was? Yeah, look, heading into the budget, it's a bit worrying that his recognition is so low. But the one guy who did, literally the only guy who knew who Scott Morrison was, was a delivery driver. And I'm also surprised when asking about policy that the number of people, when asked about what they could name from this government, was just the three-word slogan, stop the boats. I think that that is just a sign of the success of political messaging. While they don't know so many of the politicians in Canberra, they do know that this government is about stopping the boats. And so three-word slogans for the win. So they didn't recognise him as treasurer, but did they recognise him maybe from his earlier work being the man behind the Where the Bloody Hell Are Ya uh, Tourism Australia (laughs) campaign? One of the great tourism campaigns. A job from which he was fired. (laughs) Hmm. Poor ScoMo. Poor, poor, poor ScoMo. So no one, no one like went to kiss the picture or like light it on fire or anything. No, the one, literally the one guy who knew who he was. When I said, "Do you know who he is?" and he said, "Oh yeah, that's Scott Morrison. He's a dickhead." And it was, other than that, everyone looked blankly when I kept throwing this photo in people's faces. They're like, "You, you bring it close to my face. It's not going to make me recognize him all of a sudden." So, and so, even when prompted, saying. It's Scott, do you know his last name? And they're like, no. And a few people actually thought he was Malcolm Turnbull. So no one from the Shire, you obviously when it came across, no one, no Cronulla's no. Sharks fans. So looking at this um, recognition uh, polling, Scott Morrison has also gone down. Last year, 61% of people knew who he was. This year, it's only 60. And right below him is Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton's on 56. His rec- recognition has gone up from 50 to 56. So... Maybe Scott yeah, should look, go back to being immigration minister. And I call BS on this as well. I, I think that if you get out of your bubble, the, this exercise taught us, if you get out of your bubble and go speak to people who have no connection to politics and ask them about politicians, very few people actually engage with the process and know who these people are. If you were sort of saying, name five current Australian politicians, what's interesting is you get Malcolm Turnbull being number one, and number two is often Pauline Hanson. So what does that say about p- politics and the cult of celebrity that the second most recognisable figure in Australian politics is someone who has 10% of the primary vote? So it's so interesting that so few know Labor politicians, Greens politicians, and I think that that says a lot about the mainstream media and um, tabloid culture in this country. Well, speaking of recognisable politicians, 
uh, our guest on the podcast this week is probably one of the most recognisable Greens politicians in uh, federal parliament, and that is the Senator for South Australia, Sarah Hanson-Young. Now, Mark, she's only 35, but this is her ninth year in parliament. Nine years. Nine Nine years, and she's got a kid, and she juggles about five portfolios. It's hectic. I think that this is... This is uh, a really depressing time to compare yourself to someone so accomplished in the Australian political space. But here's our chat with Sarah Hanson Young. The Raven! The Raven! Senator Sarah Hanson Young, welcome to the podcast. Or should I call you by your other name, Raven? <laughs> Could you quickly explain to, to people who may not know why you've got the nickname Raven? Well,. Because when I was visiting the Nauru Detention Centre um, a number of years ago, uh, the uh, people, Wilson Security and Transfield, who run the detention centre, the government contractors, uh, decided to tail me and um, have surveillance on, on me while I was on the island. And my code name apparently was The Raven. <laughs> Has the nickname stuck? Uh, it's, uh, it's my wicker name. Oh, so you know, hot tip for anyone wanting to message. So if anyone wants Senator to, Young. if anyone wants to message Senator Hanson Young on the self-destruct messaging app Wicker, look up the Raven. That's really funny. Yeah, it's it's one of those um, one of those things that when it happened at the time, you know, obviously there's a lot of seriousness about the idea that a private company has been contracted by the government and is spying on a federal member of parliament. That's pretty serious, um, but. At the same time, you have to kind of take it in your stride. So I, I thought, um, there's worse code names. Imagine if I'd been called pigeon, you know, <laughs> or cougar, or cougar. <laughs> <laughs> I think ravens are right. Um, you got the immigration portfolio taken off your hands last year, was it? Yeah, in uh, August last year. Do you miss it? I do. I do. It's one of those. Um, I said at the time, and you know, it, it's one of those. Areas where once you've been in it that deep and for that long, it never leaves you. And the stories of people in uh, detention centres, the stories of people that I've helped um, be able to settle safely and peacefully here in Australia, kids that I've been able to help, that stuff never leaves you. Um, And I came to politics over that issue in particular and um, I'm never going to stop fighting for justice. Do you think the Greens have lost the argument on offshore detention, though, in Australia, when it's now a bipartisan issue. Labor and the Coalition have said, no, offshore processing is mandatory. Nauru and Manus are here to stay. And it seems as though it's gone to update elections now. The majority of the population agree with them and not you guys. You know, I actually think that's a really interesting question because I feel that after all this time, there is less and less public support for the idea of offshore detention now, that it seems um, more that the public is aware of how ridiculous it is, so expensive, so inhumane, and that it is the government and the opposition or both the major parties who have pushed themselves into such tight corners, they're the ones who don't know how to move now. I think the public would actually be quite comfortable if there was a uh, a change from either side to say look if we put in place a proper 
system where people are processed um, as quickly as possible. Um, people who are found to be refugees are helped. People who aren't are sent home. I think people would accept that. That they've pushed themselves into these tight corners. They've made any change or any fracture of the policy. Uh, they've dressed it up that it would have to be a failure. I think it's it's the parties that are locked in because the problem not is the public. because the problem is now we've got to a stage where if there was a change in policy and even one boat arrived, it would become well. This just showed you offshore detention was the thing uh, that stopped the boats. They've created the biggest rod for their own back, and it is uh, a, a over an issue that could have been handled so much. Um, better, uh, more humanely, and for a lot less money. I mean, if we were if, if we're worried about people coming on boats, stop people coming on boats by giving them another option. I and mean, process their claims in Indonesia, work out who's a refugee and fly them here. And that's what we used to do under the Fraser government. It can happen again, but not while we've got these two major parties with their back against the wall, stuck in the corner, and any inch, you know, the kind of... the uh, the uh, glimmer of light between their policies would would cause havoc and chaos because it'd be seen as a as a failure. Well, it's a failure of leadership, not a not um, not the public. Now, your new portfolios are education, finance and trade, water, arts and youth. There's quite a few there, isn't there? Yeah. Th- how do you manage all those <laughs> portfolios? <laughs> it's um, some of them cross over, which is mm. good, um, but. Yeah, there's always something going on. Well, you backed NXT's move uh, recently to to call for a youth minister because there there was one. Pre- there hasn't been one since 2013. Kate Ellis was the last one under Labor. Um, when Malcolm Turnbull was asked about it, he used the pithy line, "Oh well, my front bench they're so youthful." Oh. Well, I think the average age there is 50. Yeah. Uh, so why do you think that? Why why are you getting behind this call for a youth minister? Well, look, I you know is one of the. Um, younger members of the parliament still and um, the youngest woman ever to be elected to this place. How old were you? I was 25. That is so young. I know. 25 years old and a senator. I know. And you've been I shouldn't have even really been allowed to drive, let alone. And you've been here for 10 years. Yeah. That is... You've obviously changed a lot in that time. You've had children. I've put on some weight. I've gotten a bit (laughs) bit grey hair. I've had a child. Yeah. That's so crazy. But you do uh, on the youth minister issue. Um, look, it's really important that young people have a voice in our parliament and the pithy response from the Prime Minister just proves actually that they are so out of touch with the fact that young people um, are fed up with the way politics is happening in this country. They don't feel like they've got a proper voice in the government. Um, I And I think... There's an excuse, you know, the last election, people were saying, oh, you know, young people aren't engaged, they don't care about politics. There is no one else to blame but politicians ourselves. I don't think for any moment that young people don't care about uh, the core issues of the day or um, the bigger issues of the future, whether that's climate change or, uh, you know, the the massive social change in terms of globalisation or just being able to afford your rent on a weekly basis. I mean, these are all issues that young people constantly have to deal with, think about debate, and yet they're being shut out of the political process because, frankly, baby boomers still run the show. Well, 
there's got to be generational change sometime. Mm. Do you think young people care about 18C changes? <sighs> Does anyone really care about that except for, you know, the bigots inside the Liberal Party and perhaps some on the on the cross benches? I mean, look, I care about it because I am worried about where this goes and where this takes, mm. um, where this debate is taking uh, the country and what it means for... Um, multicultural Australia. Um, so I care about it because of that, because there is a push to weaken our um, racial discrimination laws. But let's be honest, people don't come home from work at the end of the day and go, God, do you know what happened to me today? I couldn't be racist to somebody. Like that's what's wrong with this country. And no one, no one says that. No one comes home from work and says, oh, this is, this is the biggest issue going on. So... Uh, it's just well, Pauline Hanson said during the 18C debate that uh, she challenged anyone to point out a single time that she said anything racist. Oh, I saw that. So um, I've, I've, I went back yesterday and watched a few of her old videos. There's some corkers in there. Like, um, even, even only uh, a couple of weeks ago, she did some interview with um, Current Affair where she said, um, if you have a lineup of Muslims, you know, try and pick the good one. Now, if that's not racist, what is? How do the Greens feel about the rise of One Nation? Because uh, a lot of the, the, the time when people talk about news polls, they talk about two-party preferred, so that's how the coalition of faring up against the Labor Party for an election was held today. But there's a bit of polling around in, in Melbourne um, and in other, and other regions that, that suggests that One Nation are on the rise and, and are kind of challenging the Greens' vote. You know, we are out far out from an election, but how, how do you feel about Go their ahead. kind of rising prominence? I... There is obviously the increase in the One Nation polling, um, although interesting to see what happened in WA. I mean, they were polling on huge numbers and then just crashed. And in a week. In a week. Yeah. And that was because Pauline Hanson got airtime and, you know, stuffed up her interview and people actually got a sense of what she's really on about. You know, she said that she didn't think that vaccinations were important. Well, that was a loopy bloody thing to say, wasn't it? So, you know... More airtime for Pauline to say silly things probably is is the um, takeout note from that. Do you reckon but, just on that though? Do you reckon that there's there's irony there that the Racial Discrimination Act and trying to shut down free speech actually what Pauline Hanson needs more than anything is enough rope, rope. to hang herself. Yes, with. and it's and it's like the more speech she has, the better it is because actually people get to find out what she believes in. So. You know, I think this is a really interesting point because I think she, um, uh, the more rope you give her, yes, she'll um, she'll find herself in um, a situation where she's less popular. People will find out who she is and what what she that her that her views are wacky um, and and horrid. Um, but we also have to be um, responsible as elected members of parliament, as um, leaders in our communities, that we don't dog whistle to some of the worst parts of human nature and I think a lot of this 18c debate uh, the anti-muslim push um, the the ban on Muslim migration the I, I don't know if you heard some of the awful wacky stuff that Malcolm Roberts said in his speech uh, this week but it was disgusting really disgusting um, and that is designed as um, uh, to a particular audience, but the moment you give uh, legitimacy to to that view, you give 
other people a license and you know young people across this country it doesn't matter who they are uh, you, you shouldn't have to feel intimidated or worried about uh, feeling safe in your own community just because you happen to be part of a particular ethnic group and I don't think any member in this parliament should be making um, a young Muslim woman feel like she doesn't belong in her own country. I'm sure I've heard One Nation say the same thing about the Greens, giving giving them legitimacy by letting them have their time. You know, I don't know why... It, this comes back to this, the question about the polling, hey? Um, One Nation, uh, the polling for One Nation, the polling for the Greens... There is, I, don't, I don't see that we're in competition at all. I don't think there's anyone who votes for One Nation who would really, you know, vote for the Greens. But what I do see is that there is a growing concern uh, across um, the broader political spectrum, um, away from uh, uh, concern about where politics is and away from uh, the old parties. And people are saying, particularly young people, are saying when are we going to start talking about issues like inequality and tackling that? Now, this, And this is where One Nation is going to become uh, unstuck because they pretend they care about people on welfare. They pretend they care about issues of social inequality. But every time they're given a chance to do something here in the parliament, they line up with the Liberal Party and they line up uh, with the elites and uh, and the wealthy. They've passed tax cuts to the rich. They're about to pass tax cuts to um, corporations who earn up to $50 million. That's not a small business. I mean, it, it, they are not in any way the friend of uh, the low uh, income or indeed the disadvantaged. But the one policy area you guys have in common, I guess, is uh, medical marijuana. Well, let's know, all get stoned. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know this is this is an issue where there is growing consensus across all political um, parties in this place because you know the evidence is there that um, as a as a um, alternative medicinal uh, option, it works and it's relieving people of chronic pain it's helping people deal with epilepsy it's helping people deal with um massive issues of um anxiety i think you know the we've got to listen to the medical professionals here and and they say come on let's get this regulated and allow people to access it and stop stop leaving people who could be relieved of chronic pain uh, let's stop seeing them suffer now, I want to quickly ask you about what it's like to be a young woman in Parliament. We've had uh, Labor's Kate Ellis resign recently, saying that uh, she's pregnant with another child and that she wants to be there for her kid. Uh, you know, she's from South Australia as well. How do you feel as a young mum working in, in, in Parliament? Do, well, have you ever considered quitting? N- no, I haven't. And, um, you know, I understand Kate's decision and, you know, we all have to make our own um, decisions in this place when it comes to our own, our families. I, in some ways, I've been really lucky because I was elected at the same time as um, becoming a mum. And so I, I grew up in the Senate this, uh, along with growing up as a mum. And my daughter's 10 now and uh, she's a good litmus test of, you know, all the things we've been through. And because of that, I feel like I haven't known life any different in politics except for the, the constant juggle. But I've also never wanted to pretend that 
I have it right all the time. Like it's a it, people talk about your know, work life balance, and it's not just in you know in politics. We say we want people to strive for it um, uh, in the broader community. I don't know anyone who has a work life balance. It's a constant juggle, and sometimes it's over here, and sometimes it's over here, and you just hope that you're doing your best and it averages out. You've been here ten years and. Uh a lot has changed, obviously, in the building since then. But one of the things that I've particularly noticed sitting in the Senate a lot is that you are often you are often the victim of oh, maybe victim is the wrong word, but you often bear the brunt of a lot of the white coalition older senators. Who the other day one of them uh, said, "You you look nasty." I mean, people don't often, I think... And and, and the irony clearly is is lost on (laughs) those uh, grumpy old white men who, you know, could probably do with a few runs around the block here. (laughs) Well, people don't don't see the Senate as much as, you know, I sit in the chamber a lot and watch a lot of the Senate. Is this... Is this kind of a regular thing? This kind of, kind of it's and it's not even just misogyny. I feel like there's because you're a green as well. There's some kind of latent hatred yeah. that's kind of Look, built into this language that they call you. You know, it it is definitely there, and um, it is a majority. The, the majority of it comes from um, the uh, older men in the chamber and the conservatives. Um, those grumpy kind of. A liberal and national MPs who, you know, basically are going to be carted out of here in a box. Like they're not going anywhere. Well, they've all but, they've all know. admitted that. I think. <laughs> you know, you just they're kind not of, retiring without their pensions. Not, now. Yeah, <laughs> they, you know, you, you just got to wonder really what's going on in your life that this is um, you're still hanging around. But yes, those comments are there, and you know, and I don't think that that's great. Um, at the same time, this is why we need. A generational change in politics. We need more young women in this place. Uh, we need um, more young men in this place. We need more people of uh, diversity of cultural backgrounds in this place because uh, the people running the show now are grumpy old white men who don't like change and they certainly don't like a young feisty woman who has an opinion standing up in the Senate. Well, you know, here I am. I've, I've been doing it for, for quite some time now. You know, they haven't gotten used to it. Well, uh, you know, that's their problem. What's the worst thing you've been called? Ooh. In the chamber? In the chamber by another senator. <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that. Um, like, have you been called something as bad as like the C word or a bitch or something that's like no, quite so, confronting. No, no, not those types. Of, that's that's not the type of um, uh, language that is used in the chamber. The types of things that are used are such as, you, do you know how nasty you look when you, you know, get going? I think that was the, the quote. Of course, you know, these people look pretty nasty even when they're trying to smile and be happy. Um, but it, it's it's more kind of... Um, shushing. They shush. They shush. It's more comments about kind of uh, being, you know, she this and uh, she that, you know, trying to shut you down just because you're a woman, not because, uh, yeah, they don't they don't use the c word. Mm. In fact, uh, if they did, uh, you know, in a way, um, it could be called out clearer. 
it's more insidious than that. Yeah, it's like I've 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 even seen hissing and you know yes. cat meowing and yes. stuff like that. Yes, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, Sarah, the name of the podcast is Is It On? We hear a lot of talk about leadership speculation in the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. What about in the Greens? Is there? I mean, just because no one's talking about it doesn't mean it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> um, no, I think we're probably the most stable party in this place. Uh, how do you think you're, you're going with dealing with the government at the moment? Are, are the Greens copped a bit of flack um, for the backpack attacks decision when you when you made a compromise with the government. Is that, a, you know, I think that your leader, Richard Di Natale, often says that we're the party of grown-ups and so we will be negotiating. Do you think that's a good look for the parties? Are going well? Yeah, oh, look, I think we're expected. I think the public expects us to get outcomes where we can and uh, and to stand up on the issues that um, we believe in. You know, you don't capitulate just because, you know, the government snaps their fingers. I mean, that's what you see happening on the crossbench at the moment with One Nation. I mean, the, the threats of, you know, One Nation striking, I mean... It's been ridiculous. They didn't strike for one, and secondly, they keep voting with the government. Um, so you've and also there isn't... Jackie Lambie did it for half a year, and it didn't work out well for her. So <laughs> learn from history. That, that, that's true too. Um, look, I think there is an expectation uh, from the public that we will be um, willing to fix legislation where we can uh, and get good outcomes where we can but also not be afraid to stand up to whoever it is, whether it's the government, whether it's the opposition, whether it's people on the crossbench, on the issues that really matter. I mean, it's you, you look at the debates that we have in the, the chamber or motions that are voted on, very often it is the Greens versus the rest and on things where um, you know um, you have conversations with people on the backbenches of Labor and Liberal and they don't like how they're voting but they're not. You know, they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. Baby boomers might be running the show now, but that's not going to be the way forever. So obviously it's not on in the Greens. We won't be seeing Greens leader Sarah Hansen-Young in the next few months. But uh, what do you think? Do you think, is it on? That's what we like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Is it on? Yeah. Is it on the coalition? Um, or Labor? Or One Nation? Whoever. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, uh, Malcolm Turnbull is not in a good place right now. And um, I can't. You know, whether it's capitulating on 18C, uh, this ridiculous situation with uh, penalty rates, he's kind of backed himself into a corner, or really his pathetic attack on the renewable energy industry and his newfound love for coal, and he's just losing on all fronts. So I, 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 don't, I think he's the one who's, um, who's probably in the most trouble right now. Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I like big warmer. I like big warmer. I like big warmer. I like big Never more. So Sarah Hanson Young, I I would say Mark, she was a bit cagey about what's happening with the internal politics with the Greens at the moment, but I would say watch this space. Yeah, there's some warring Greens factions in both New South Wales. And Victoria, many people don't know this, but there's the 
There's the there's the left and the far left in the Greens, and they're currently at each other's throats. So much of it actually happens on Facebook and online. So people think that the Greens are smoking the peace pipe, being all la da holding each other's hands and singing kumbaya. There is a lot of bitter recriminations, especially over Richard Di Natale taking over from Christine Milne as the leader of the Greens. There's a lot of fallout, and I think that if we uh, got more of a look at the Greens, you'd, you'd see there's some, yeah, really ugly personal battles at play. Yeah, because they're very tight-lipped, the Greens. We kind of, you know, it, it's 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 normal in the two major parties to get people leaking against their colleagues and backgrounding journalists, but the Greens are very tight-lipped. They very rarely talk out about each other. They, um, when Richard Di Natale took over from Christine Milne, you know, that it was uh, this whole organised coup that sidelined Sarah Hansen Young and Adam Bant, uh, who who were in the line to to be deputies or to to get a bigger position in the party, and and Scott Ludlam and Larissa Waters kind of stepped up, and now they're co-deputies, which is a very amusing idea. A co-deputy, I mean, it's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, um, and and this is and this is the the thing that everyone says, especially within the Canberra Beltway bubble thing, is that everyone knows that Sarah Hansen Young was really angry that when she got that taken taken away that immigration portfolio and it got handed to Nick McKim. So I think that. Uh, it is fascinating for a lot of the nerdy political class. Yeah, and, be- and, and also because in South Australia they lost a Senate seat and um, and there is this thing happening with the in South Australia about who will get Bob Day's Senate seat. Uh, it won't be the Greens, but Rob Sims, who lost his seat, is on Sky News every week. He's doing a lot of media, so he's going to make a play to either be the number one on the ticket and push Sarah Hansen-Young down or to mm, run a bigger campaign saucy. there. So it's gonna. there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with the Greens. It's not just all smoke and weed and, <laughs> and, Getting and, high and diss and trade deals. <laughs> on legalising drugs. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, now it's time to pick some stories out of the bin, wipe off the juices and uh, give a bit of attention to things that we thought fell by the wayside this week in bin juice. Mark, what have you got from out of the bin that you reckon needs a bit more podcast airtime? Yeah, last two weeks you've really brought the seriousness into this segment and you've been getting a lot of praise for it, so I've decided to do the same. I'm going to talk about Syria for a second because while Turnbull has been away in India. There's been a lot going on beneath the surface. It may not be at the top of the uh, websites. It may not be in the top of your news feed, but there's a lot going on in the Syrian space. I'm sure we all know last week there was a really horrific suspected chemical attack on a Syrian town. There were these awful images of children choking and dying, and it led Donald Trump, the new US president, to attack Syria with missile strikes, although he had spent so much time in the past tweeting about never attacking Syria and begging Obama not to, he did the opposite of what he did last Thursday. So the Australian government's response to the missile attacks on Thursday was to come out of the blocks really hard. Was one of, We were really one of the first Western nations on Friday. Malcolm Turnbull praised the move, repeated over and over again that it was a swift and proportionate response, said it was great. Labor fell in behind lockstep and said it was the same. So our big major parties on the same page as Donald Trump. But by last weekend, Turnbull even came out and was saying he thought Assad had to go if there was going to be a solution in Syria. So it was an interesting um, bipartisan push over the first couple of days. But there was opposition within Australia from a couple of places. The first 
we were talking about the Greens before. Senator Scott Ludlam, who's the acting Greens leader, said there should be de-escalation, not escalation, in Syria and a real focus on refugee efforts. While in came this week independent MP Andrew Wilkie. Now, Andrew Wilkie, for those that don't know, is from Tasmania. He plays a really interesting role in federal politics because he's an independent in the lower house and he often speaks up just on really hyper-local issues. But he's also a former intelligence officer who resigned in the lead-up to the Iraq war. He was warning everyone, including former Prime Minister John Howard, about the really flimsy intelligence that Australia was acting on that led us to war. So this week, Wilkie has jumped on whether Assad actually committed the suspected chemical attack last year. Here's what he said. Frankly, I just don't trust the Trump administration. I would make a, It would make a lot more sense for them to beat the drums of war again when they are under so much pressure domestically. I think we should be very cautious in Australia and not be too quick to automatically endorse what the US is saying. We have been stuck in the Middle East quagmire since 2003 Again, on account of allegations of chemical and biological and nuclear weapons. So Andrew Wilkie has been jumped all over by our conservative press and much of our mainstream reporting um, has been criticising him for saying this. And for sure, there's widespread agreement amongst the US defence agencies and you know that intelligence has been shared with Australia that the attack was committed by Assad. But I thought for binges this week, I wanted to just highlight this because I thought it was very interesting that someone who has been right before and vindicated historically when it came to Iraq, he's ringing the bell and saying that we should wait and consider and debate before we go headfirst into another war in the Middle East. Alice, what's your binges this week? Well, speaking of Andrews, remember Mm. last year that uh, completely uh, successful, not flawed, not technologically dodgy uh, census that we all completed, that we definitely, every single Australian, definitely filled out on the line? Yeah, I just logged on and I just put my number in and it took me 15 minutes to yeah. fill out the census. And you didn't get a fine or anything. Completely yeah. S- yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're finally getting the first results through from last year's census. And this week we found out what the typical Australian is. Now, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has named the typical Australian Claire. She is a 38-year-old woman mm. who is married with two kids, Born in Australia, her parents were also born in Australia and they're from an English, Anglo-Saxon background. She's completed year 12. She owns um, uh, two cars and she also owns her own three-bedroom house. Claire so Claire has is it. rich as hell. Claire's got it going on. And I decided that Claire is either one or two people. She's either A, the brand power lady, because the <laughs> picture that they put on the ABF's website is a, the cartoon version of the brand power lady. Shout out to my fave brand power lady, or B, she is like that annoying friend you have that has all her shit together and you're like, we get it, Claire. you got a great life. Can I just drink my good Chill out, quiet? Claire. Put away your privilege, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got all the privs. All the privs. So we decided to look at if Claire is the typical Aussie, my question was, how does the typical Aussie compare to the typical federal politician? And in news that probably won't shock you, Mark, it is... Very different. Are you saying that Australian politicians aren't reflective of the society at large? (laughs) So the typical Polly is a white man who is 51 years old, was born in Australia, his parents were born in Australia, who not only owns one but two homes, has multiple degrees, including a law degree, most likely with honours. He's married with two kids 
And I've decided to call this 51-year-old white man Andrew. Do you, do you want to know why? Uh, why? Why Andrew? Because there are eight Andrews currently in federal politics. Eight. That's a lot of Andrews. Yeah. That's so many Andrews. It in a, a, in a of parliament Andrews. of 224. Yeah. Not oh, only are there... Yeah. In a parliament of that size, we've got eight Andrews, and two people's last names are Andrews. Yeah, Kevin Andrews and Karen Andrews. Both liberals. That's absolutely absurd. Yeah. The, the, the game of guess who of the Australian parliament would actually be over very fast. <laughs> I think the most interesting comparison between the typical Aussie and uh, the typical politician is obviously the gender balance. There are way more men in parliament. Only less than one in five... Uh, politicians from the coalition side, so that's the Liberal Nationals, are women. That's pretty small. That's just absurd. That is so absurd. But the other comparison is is about owning your own home. So we talk a lot about housing affordability, whether there's a housing bubble, what what plan is the government going to take to the budget? Well, did you know that National Senator Barry O'Sullivan owns more than 30 properties? 30! What? 30 properties! Barry O'Sullivan... What? Yeah. How do you how do you like even keep track of all those properties? Because he, he negatively oh yeah he my house in like the shit out of them. I bet. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyway, so I've put up a whole thing online about uh, what the typical uh, Aussie politician is, and if you want a bit of a insightful yet depressing read, I'd recommend it. Lane Lane Sainty helped me out. It was a really quite a bit of fun. Um, and because we had to do such a deep dive into such weird weird things, uh, I've I've brought you two fun facts, Mark, to end the podcast with. I love fun facts. I love your fun facts. Okay, so fun fact number one: politicians are have so many degrees and qualifications. They're just over, over qualified. Most of them have two, three, four, five. They got masters. Actually, Josh Frydenberg, the environment minister who we mentioned last week, has a master's in philosophy, as does Justice Minister Michael Keenan. But the most interesting wow. qualification, oh, and if anyone ever says, oh, I've only got an arts degree, I don't know what to do. Here's a hot tip. Go into politics. So many politicians. Really? Are there a lot of are there a lot of politicians advice. who have arts degrees? Really? Yeah, but they probably got honors on them. But like whatever. I reckon if you got a BA, beeline for Canberra. Um wow. but the most interesting qualification that was on the two most interesting qualifications on the list that politicians have submitted themselves to their own personal profiles um as politicians is uh from two liberal backbenchers, Luke Howarth. He has a certificate three in pest management. Wow. Um, which could come in handy with the rats on the backbench. <laughs> hey You're very funny, Alice. You should always remember that. Have you thought about going into comedy? No. Um, and then the other one is uh, Liberal backbencher Warren Ench, who most people listening probably know him as one of the biggest campaigners for marriage equality um, in Parliament, let alone on the Liberal side of things. He has listed a qualification, a qualification for his role in Parliament, so something that will help him fulfill his parliamentary duties it is croc catcher crocodile croc catcher. catcher and the best part that's is that's the most it australian says, thing that's ridiculous it says from 1982 to present the man is 67 years old and he's catching crocs when he's not the man's been the man's parliament? been catching catching crocs like longer for than longer I've than been i've been alive, been alive. <laughs> Jeez, maybe Christ. we should get him on the that's podcast that's a lot of time catching it. crocs yeah it's a lot it is a lot. So, yeah, you can read up all about uh, typical Andrew, 51-year-old white uh, male politician who owns heaps of property and is way, way, way too smart, all up on the BuzzFeed website. And, 
Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. I want to say a huge thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, who Thanks, right now Nick. is letting Martha Stefano sit on his lap while they record and in a, stroke in a tiny his cupboard shoulder. In Mm, delightful. I want to thank Nicola so Harvey. Muscly. And she's getting married this week. So big shout outs to Nicola Harvey, Pete Thanks, Holmes, Nicola. and the whole pod team. And then, of course, everyone listening, we want you guys to get involved. Tell us what you think we should be talking about. Obviously, there was no Gallery Whispers this week, but don't worry. Gallery Whispers is coming back. Mark, I even gallery had whispers. someone. So, A, Josh Frydenberg has gotten in touch after last week's Gallery Whispers. And, um,. Ooh. Uh, someone from Turkey who's listening all the way from Turkey was like, I love that gallery whispers. But even even more annoyingly, Ed Husick seemed to have gotten a lot of Twitter love and went out mm. of his way to tweet me every single person that said that he was great and you and me were just average. So uh, I think that's fair, though. Like, That's what we're, our job as hosts is to foreground the talent on the show. That, 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 it means we've done a good job. Mark, you're the talent. You are the talent. No, you're the talent. You are the talent. Shut up. Okay, go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on, or you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Leave a rating and a review. Now, the last question that I ask every single week, Mark Stefano. Oh, no, I know what's about to happen. In this holiday egg episode, is it on? I'm holding up a pretend mirror to you, Alice Workman. So this week I'm asking you, is it on? I'm asking you, is it on? Is it on? I would say it's not on, asterisk, it might be on after the budget. With a side with a side serving of this week, Scott Morrison got himself dumped from Ray Hadley, and who decided to sidle in and take his spot every Monday morning? One little Tony, Tony Abbott. Abbott. Tony Abbott is back. He's finished the polypedal. Kevin Andrews may have fallen off his bike and broken his collarbone, but Tony's back and he is Ready to give some budget criticism. So, Mark, the guy cannot in. stop sniping. May 9 is the date. Mark it in your calendar. We've got some good shit happening around budget too, which we will let you know about very soon. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.